Welcome, everyone, to the Baseball America podcast, along with Aaron Fitt in sunny Southern California. I'm John Manuel from the frozen tundra of Cary, North Carolina. And Aaron, it's our first college podcast of 2011. Usually we record our first podcast of the year at the ABC8 convention. I wasn't there this year. Obviously, you were, along with at BA High School, Nathan Rohde's new name, and at Connor Glassy. And uh, the three you guys had it covered seemed like a fairly newsworthy ABCA convention. We'll dive into the college offseason, starting with the convention and going backwards, Aaron. Uh, a couple rules changes discussed. There's the no age rule. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I want to talk first and foremost about the potential for a change in the NCAA Division One postseason. Uh, explain the two, uh, if you can, uh, send up a quick synopsis of the two potential changes to the 64-team format that were discussed in Nashville. Well, both changes, uh, you know, and I, and I will stress that they're proposed changes, and right now it's a long way from anything happening, and uh, and the smart money is on no change coming. But but the proposed changes, uh, they both start with uh, a first round that would include 32 best-of-three uh, series, so between two teams. So you'd have 32 best-of-three series at 32 different sites. Um, now, in, in, in the proposal that seems to, to have the most support, um, that would be followed by two more weekends of best-of-three series leading up to Omaha. Um, so you'd have uh, basically um, three straight weekends of Super Regionals is what you'd have. Um, right. Now, now the other proposal would have, uh, after, after your first round, your 32 best-of-three series, you'd have the remaining um, teams participate in, in um, eight Regionals, basically, you have four, fourteen, fourteen tournaments. Uh, so that one is you just invert. You would invert not the current. You know, does not have much support. Right? I think you can probably uh, scratch that one off. But there is some support for the for the first proposal. Um, you know, some northern coaches like it. Uh, John Anderson, in particular, on the committee, he's a vocal supporter. Um, but uh, in, in the end, yeah, I think it's good that the NCAA is talking about this stuff. I don't know that anything's really going to happen um, in the end. So, the, so really, the the one format is the basically three weeks of three game series. You have best of three series. The other proposal is basically the current format just inverted, you know, switching the order of the two, the two weekends. It sounds like the main benefit of both, if you're looking for a benefit, would be 32 teams get to host that first weekend instead of 16. Is that what's really touted as the reason to look at those two uh, potential changes? That, that's a big reason, although there's, you know, there's pluses and minuses about that. I mean, one thing is uh, it, it's great to have more teams host, but, um, you know, are there enough good facilities in the north where they'd like to have some of these new regionals? Um, you know, there's, there's, you'd have to have more sets of officials. You'd have to, uh, you know, how would it work with travel expenses? I mean, would you have the 32 best teams playing against the 32 worst teams, or would it be more regionalized than that? Um, you know, there's all kinds of complications. I, I think the thing that most people really seem to like about uh, the head-to-head series formats is that that's how the rest of the regular season is set up. You know, the sport is set up uh, to win best of three series. Um, and uh, then you get to a regional, and all of a sudden it's it's not like that at all. So, uh, you know, even, even people like Denny Pope and Tim Weiser, you know, some of the, the big power brokers in this sport, uh, even they find that that notion appealing of, of playing the postseason kind of more like you play the regular season. But uh, you know, again, I mean, I, I think that a lot they have to prove that that's 
really a significantly better format uh, before they're going to change something that, that works, I think, right now. I think you made a couple of good points in the blog. First of all, the tournament's very profitable, so they're not going to mess with it unless it's really a slam dunk. And second of all, John Anderson's point, I think, is a very good point. The reason to go, the best reason to go to a three-game series would be, let's put our best foot forward. Let's have our teams play in a manner in which they're comfortable. Let's have our best pitchers accentuated. Um, that makes sense. Let's stop having, you know, 32 run games and regionals or super regionals that are on TV. Let's let's make, put our best foot forward for the sport, and and uh, that makes sense. That's a that's a compelling argument because the only part of the college baseball season, generally, that's on television is the postseason. Um, and Aaron, one of the other offseason issues that I'm jumping around a little bit, but we didn't even prep to talk about. But correct me if I'm wrong, 2011 is going to be the return of kind of a college baseball game of the week because it sounds like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 2011 is when the SEC is going to move a game to Thursday night every week and it will be on one of the ESPN family networks. Isn't that right? That is correct. It's something that I think is very exciting coming up this season to a Thursday night game of the week. uh, you know, that'll give the sport a chance to be in the spotlight, and, and certainly there's a lot of very exciting matchups in the SEC. Uh, every week I think it'll probably be a pretty compelling game. Um, I, I think that's, that's something that's very exciting. It's not going to be, you know, just ESPNU either. I, I think a lot of these games are going to be on, on ESPN or ESPN2. I mean, even ESPN2 and the U have a pretty big reach. Uh, yeah. you know, I think ESPN2 is on most, and you know, like 90% as many Homes as ESPN is in, and ESPNU is in like 70% of many homes. So that's even if it were just ESPNU, it'd be a pretty wide range, um, uh, you know, for for college baseball. All those things would be uh, boons to college baseball, and obviously the SEC is the biggest kid on the block. Uh, the last two national champions in baseball are SEC teams, just like the last five national champions in. in uh, BCS champions in, in the Division One A football, um, so that's the, you know that's the league that has the uh, most eyeballs, the most, most passionate fans, and really the most uh, the, the wealthiest for the most part uh, athletic departments, and that's where you're you're going to have a lot of success. So uh, that, I think that's going to be a, a boon for college baseball just to have a steady home for you know for. Uh, and for for basis for for the best college baseball on television uh, in 2011, it's it's a shame that we didn't have that kind of national audience for last year when you had Pomeranz versus Bernardo at Ole Miss uh, LSU matchup. That was really one of the better, really one of the first times we could remember. Uh, I don't remember exactly how it wound up, but we dug through the archives to find the last time the top two ranked college pitchers face each other in a in a game like that on a Friday night. And those two guys ended up signing. I'm pretty sure Renato had the biggest bonus and Pomeranz the second biggest or vice versa yeah. among college pitchers in last year's draft. But this year's SEC, Aaron, uh, I know I'm a little bit on sidebar, would have a pretty good uh, – as long as Sonny Gray is involved, you're going to have a pretty good chance of a pretty good matchup. Yeah, you're right. And it's funny, of course, looking back on that Renato-Pomeranz game, they both got shelled. Uh, I think right. they the worst start of the year for both of them. It just so happened uh, – there's a lot of build-up for that, but but you're right. I mean, the, having those kind of matchups uh, on TV, you know, it's 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 great for the game. Well, this was an active college baseball offseason. A lot of the activity, Aaron, was in the Pac-10 conference. Uh, we'll touch on that real quick. Um, and it's a Baseball America College podcast. 
really, I think the two biggest stories of the offseason uh, that didn't involve bats. Um, we could talk about the bats a little bit. But uh, I would encourage you, if you are interested in reading about bats and bat standards, uh, just go to the BaseballAmerica.com website and type in in the search feature Baseball America Bat Guide, a G-U-I-D guide. And uh, yeah, we did a pretty comprehensive feature on really it's a whole sort of the 32 pages uh, booklet. Uh, Dave Kyle is a big fan of the American Baseball Coach Association, uh, just really specifying what bats are legal, which ones aren't, and how we got to this point uh, in college baseball. And here in the long and the short of it is, I don't think we really know what effect the bats are going to have in 2011 until actual games are played. But the consensus seems to be uh, there's going to be less defense in college baseball in 2011. Just how much less, I think, is a a matter of some conjecture. Uh, What are you hearing from the coaches as far as just how much less offense is going to be and how big of a deal will the bats be in 2011? I think it's going to be a radical change. I really do. I think the entire complexion of the game is going to be dramatically altered. Um, games, games are going to be much faster, much lower scoring. Uh, you won't see any team come close to 100 home runs this year. Uh, mark my words. It's just not going to happen. No one's going to hit 100 home runs? Is that what you said? No one's going to hit 100 home runs this year. Uh, you know, I'm putting that on the board. You can put it. There's no chance. There's just no one's going to come close. Uh, you, the, the, the team that leads the nation might might hit 60. I mean, it's, it's going to be really seriously. A, a, I think it's going to be a huge difference. How many did the team, the nation's leader last year hit? Uh, it was over 100. There were a bunch of teams over 100. I think it was uh, more like 120 or 130. I'm going to guess Kyle's at Charleston. That's my that's my team to hit 200, uh, 100 home runs, not 200. I think 170-something is the record uh, for a single season in college baseball. But, boy, national leader in the 60s, would, that, would be a, that would be an incredibly radical change. That, that's, a, that's a bold prediction. Yeah, and we'll see. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there are different uh, opinions about that, about just how dramatic it'll be. And, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, it varies a little bit. The quality of the bat varies a little bit from manufacturer to manufacturer. There's been some grumbling about, you know, some, some manufacturers didn't do as good a job adjusting to the BB core standards as others did. So, um, you know, you, you, might see, you might see it vary a little bit that way, too. But um, I, I think the consensus is that, Offense is going to be way down, and, and you got to be able to defend, and you got to be able to manufacture runs, and you, and you got to be able to pitch. Well, uh, I think that's – and the thing is, that's always been, to me, a lot of the things you have to be able to do in Omaha. You know, you have to have some power. And, I, you know, I don't think teams get to, you know, win national – teams have not been winning national championships without the ability to exploit Rosenblatt Stadium and home runs. Of course, you don't know how the new TD Ameritrade Park is going to play in Omaha yet. Um, but you, you still had you had to have pitching and defense, I think, to survive those first two rounds uh, in the in the '60-14 era. Uh, do you think it's gonna? You know, do you think that the change in bats and the change in style is gonna usher in an era of maybe different teams that go to Omaha or win, you know, win are big winners in college baseball? Our teams such as Creighton, which has long been uh, under Coach Ed Service, one of the best uh, defensive clubs in the country. Are, are those teams gonna benefit more? Because of the bats, or do you think that you know the, the best teams are generally going to adjust to the new, uh, the, the traditional powers, I should say, are going to adjust to these new bats? Or do you think maybe that these new bats are going to really maybe knock some programs from their perch? Yeah, I think so. I, I do think that some teams that 
that you know typically sit back and um, rely on the long ball. Um, you know, especially guys that uh, don't necessarily have legitimate pro power. Um, you know, the guys who are college power hitters maybe have more metal bat swings. I mean, you hear about that. Um, you know, those those kind of programs that build themselves that way, they're going to need to change the way they do things because these bats just don't play the same way. You know, it's uh, uh, it's going to play a lot more like wood. And so if you don't have um, guys with, with legit wood bat power, then, um, you know, you're not going to be able to build your team around power. It's just that simple. I have to say, I, I hope that uh, I hope it's not quite as extreme as what you're talking about, because I do think that people do forget that most of these players, uh, most of these, the vast number of, vast majority of Division One college players do not go and play professional baseball, A. Most of them aren't that good and need the help. And B, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, your batting averages and your offensive averages in the Cape Cod League, and the best, or generally the best players in college baseball go to the Cape and play with Wood. Uh, I, you know, one one caveat there is that's usually just freshmen and sophomores, not a whole lot of juniors and seniors in the Cape. So you're just from a physical maturity level, you're not necessarily getting a fair representation. But it's generally the best players, so there's some trade off there. But generally, you got, you know, teams in the Cape are averaging under four runs a game, Aaron, and at the Cape league-wide batting average will be 240, 245, 250 in that range. You know, do you think it's going to be that extreme that college baseball, Division One? You know, college baseball will be that kind of game, and if so, do you think that's going to hurt the popularity of the game? I think there's a chance. I mean, I I probably won't be quite that dramatic, only because you know it is still a metal bat, and um, you know it, it. I don't think it's going to play quite the same way as a wood bat. I think it'll be a little bit more potent, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's going to be it's going to be more like that. That's for sure. It'll be um, you know, you see a lot of, of, of four to two games and three to two and uh, you know, probably a lot more one nothing games too, and I, I don't know. I don't know what effect that's going to have on on the fan interest. That's one of the major question marks here. Um, you know, the, let's face it: the conference that drives a lot of attendance is uh, is the SEC, and uh, uh, that's it's really an offensive park. It's a home or offensive league, rather. It's a home run hitting league. Um, you know, will fans down there adjust to a, a different style of play? Um, how will they? Yeah, and I, I'm really, I'm also concerned. Uh, now, I'd hate for I, – I love the West Coast style from a from – about I love to talk to coaches about coaching a West Coast style. You know, like we've talked about, like the 2007 game in Omaha between UC Irvine and Fullerton. That was like the best and worst of West Coast baseball all in one game. It was the best because the game was taut and, uh, and very tense and, uh, you know, both teams skilled it up and uh, took a dose and bunted, and there were a million bunt defenses, and it was a skill-oriented game. It was the worst because both coaches came out of the dugout anytime there was a down base, and both catchers were wearing armbands and wristbands, and both teams had like a billion plays, a billion defenses, and the game took five hours and 40 minutes, and it was like five to four. And it was one on a basis loaded hit by pitch, wasn't it, by Taylor Holiday? Uh believe that maybe right. he scored he scored the winning run was scored because of a hit by pitch so um you know it was, a, it was all the best traits of that style and all the worst traits and i i do worry that if the game i would hate for the game to be I, i'm sure the pace will be quicker because of because of the bats in general um 
Well, I hate for the game to, to devolve into just that, or that's the only way to go. Uh, that would be a problem, because I think pace of play is a bigger issue than time of game or length of game. I think it's the pace that's the problem um, at college baseball. But well, I think it's a lot of unknown, a lot of speculation. I, I agree with you in general. I think that offense is going to be down, but I don't think it's going to be quite as down because uh, the, other, the other side are also amateurs, the amateurs, the defense and the pitching. Those guys are amateurs too, and uh, it'll be interesting. It, it, it's, uh, the, it's a bad change. Um, maybe in the media, maybe the first couple of years won't be this renowned, but if you know if you get rewarded for throwing more fastballs at the college level, uh, that may be a better thing for college baseball in the long run as well. I, I kind of hope that is one of the yeah. um, you know uh, benefits, side benefits of, of the bat change that pitchers will throw more fastballs, throw fewer breaking balls, uh, you know, work off their fastball more, and that, that attracts more pitchers to college baseball. Uh, eventually that could increase the quality of play in college baseball as well. Maybe more athletes uh, come to college baseball because that speed is, uh, you know, co- uh, coveted more in, in college baseball as opposed to, you know, players who are more one-dimensional and where their ability to drive the ball with a metal bat uh, is, is an all-consuming need for uh, teams in recruiting. So we'll see yeah, what happens. I, uh, I agree. I agree with that, John. And I think it'll be nice, you know, to, to see pitchers throw inside again you know it's uh it'll be nice uh to see pitchers throwing more strikes and attacking hitters i think that'll be good for the pace of play too is that uh pitchers won't have to nibble as much if you've got fringy stuff rather than have to nibble you, you can attack hitters a little bit more pound the strike zone put the ball in play um you know i i think that's a, a big reason the pace of play is going to is going to pick up it's the baseball america podcast with john Aaron fit uh Aaron, we've actually got a, and, uh, email questions at podcast.baseballamerica.com. So why don't we go ahead and take a couple of those. They're more team-specific as opposed to the general off-season things we're talking about, but we'll, we'll, we'll spread the love around a little bit. Uh, Joe Cates, consistent emailer, asks, uh, uh, is wondering if you could touch on Stanford a bit. On paper, there seems like a club that could be destined for some special things over the next two seasons. Another great recruiting class, a voice for breakout, Kenny DeKroger, one of the tooliest outfielders, outfielders uh, coming together sometime with Jake Stewart, Brian Regeira, and Austin Wilson. Of course, Regeira might play third base this year, Aaron, but uh, the other outfielder, I'm blanking on his name. For Tyler example, Gaffney. Tyler Gaffney, again, no slouch in the athleticism department. Um, but here we had our, we just had yesterday, met for two hours for our uh, preseason top 25. So, you know, what is that, 120 minutes over 25 teams. So it was a lot, like four plus minutes per team, per spot on the pole. So I put some thought into that, uh, into that top 25 yesterday. We'll, we'll release it uh, later this month in January. Uh, but the Cardinals in the top 25, that's all I'll reveal. But Aaron, I think we both have fairly high expectations for Stanford, probably the highest we've had for them uh, in the last six, seven uh, years. Because even their 2008 team, which went to the Cardinals series, there were some expectations, but not as high as they are on the farm this year. Yeah, they're they're going to be one of the most exciting teams in the country this year, and uh, uh, you know, the athleticism is outstanding. Um, you know, the, the the electric arms that they have. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see what Mark Appel can do as a sophomore uh, at the back of that staff. Uh, you know, I think uh, um, AJ Venegas is is uh, is going to be a, a real star from day one as a freshman in that weekend rotation. 
Um, you know, I think a lot depends on how good Brett Mooneyham is this year. You know, he's a guy who came in with huge expectations as a freshman. Uh, he struggled to throw strikes in his career. In this summer, he's, his stuff was down a little bit with Team USA. What Which Brett Mooneyham is going to show up? Because they're kind of counting on him to be their, their anchor of their rotation. I think that's the most important question with them. Uh, but the other question with them is, you know, how how will those freshmen perform? I mean, they're asking a lot of of Austin Wilson and Brian Regeira, and those guys are, are you know, they're going to have to come right in and, and perform as freshmen um, for that team to reach its potential. But but it certainly has a chance to be um, a very special team. At the very least, it's going to be an exciting team and a very interesting team to watch. And they had, what, three guys who were number one prospects in summer college league this summer with the Kroger, um, Jake Stewart, and, and Chris, uh, Chris Reed, Reed up yeah. in the Atlantic Collegiate League. Yeah. Like, I know he's not as big of a factor on this team, but he is a, you know, he gives them some pitching depth, uh, low 90s fastball. And then they had plenty of guys, uh, Appel, uh, was, uh, you know, quite good this, this summer. Um, like I said, Mooneyham, I think we both agree, uh, is literally a big X factor because he's a big power left handed arm. And, he, you know, he has been in the weekend rotation for two years, he's very experienced. Um, you know, but like you said, his stuff was down this summer. I mean, I only saw him for one inning with the USA team because of a rain delay, but he was 86 to 90 in that inning. And, and this is a guy who lived in the low 90s as a freshman, uh, very inconsistent though with his command over the course of two years at Stanford. Hard to imagine. He, he did a huge job one for Rusty Filter, uh, the pitching coach who obviously uh, played a big hand in Steven Strasburg's success at San Diego State and, uh, you know, now, uh, has moved on to Stanford. So I, I think bringing the most out of Mooneyham will be the real big key for for Stanford. Uh, we've got another couple of questions on the, on the podcast. Um, one of them on, on uh, from PSL at PSL to Flushing on our Twitter feed, uh, asking about the college position players of strength in the 2011 draft. Like which positions are strong in the draft, and who are some of the top guys at the position? We have at least our top 100 college prospects upon BaseballAmerica.com uh, has been for a while. Uh, to, you know, it really seems like outside of uh, Anthony Rendon, there really isn't a college position player, uh, a, hitter, a position among hitters as a strength, except for, I guess, outfield. Yeah. I mean, you have George Springer at UConn and Jackie Bradley Jr. of South Carolina, joined by uh, Brian Goodwin, the sophomore at University of North Carolina, who has transferred the semester to uh, Miami Dade Junior College um, because he was academically ineligible in North Carolina. Uh, speaking of him, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this. Did you notice that Dylan Hazlett of North Carolina has transferred to Emporia yeah. State? I, mean, I, I did yeah, not know I, that. I knew he I left. I didn't know where he landed, but, yeah, he. Uh, it sounds like he wasn't a great fit in the clubhouse there. Well, uh, well Brian uh, Goodwin not in that clubhouse anymore. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that his uh, inclusion in the 2011 draft class is a good little boost for the 2011 class. Obviously, hurts the 2012 class. That's not a pitching and outfield. I can't think of a position that's really strong uh, for college baseball uh, prospects in the 2011 draft class. What's your feeling on that? You know, I think the outfield class is the strongest we've had in college in a while, just because you've got two potential first or top ten picks with with Springer and Bradley. And that alone, I think, makes this class unique. Um, you and I have talked a lot about how few impact college outfielders there have been over the years. And uh, uh, you throw in Alex Dickerson, some guys really like his bat. There's a little bit of, of uh, division and opinion on, on him, uh, whether his bat will play. 
uh, in, in pro ball, but a lot of people do like him a lot. Uh, and Mikey Matsuk is a good athlete. I mean, he's not in the same class really as, as Springer and Bradley as a, as a hitter, but um, certainly is interesting. You know, I, I think the outfield also have, is very strong. We also have TCU's Jason Coates at 20. Uh, Johnny Rudiger, uh, the nephew, I guess, of Rudy from Notre Dame fame, is at 27. Another uh, very good athlete. Zach Wilson of Arizona State is going to play first base this year, but it's kind of a an outfield. And I guess one of the big X factors uh, is Zach Cohn of uh, Georgia, who was a third-round pick at a high school, had some success last year. But, you know, Georgia had two unsigned third-round picks. Uh, and also Chase Davidson on that team, and Chase Davidson hit under 200 last year. So just because you were drafted at a high school doesn't mean to left the college. Uh, yeah, you can, that, uh, Chase Davidson might uh, I find that out the hard way in a 2000, uh, 2011 draft. Uh, another, we'll go ahead and get our podcast questions out of the way here. Another podcast question is from MojoDev1 at AOL.com. I'm sure that's how he wants known because he didn't sign his name. But Mojo wants to know, does Virginia Tech take a step back in the ACC with their losses? And does this provide a bigger door for Duke to step through? Given the loss of Goodwin and the shaky state of their pitching staff without Matt Harvey, does UNC seem like it will have a better showing than you than last? That's really kind of an ACC question out here. And two years ago, you predicted Duke going to the 64-team field. I really think you were, you were off by one game. If Duke had won one game against Wake Forest that year, won that series instead of losing two out of three, um, yeah, I think you would have been right. I think Duke would have been 16 or 14 in the ACC. They would have gone to regionals, and instead they didn't. Um, yeah, is this Duke's best chance to get to regionals, and do Tech and North Carolina take a take a step back? I think Tech's definitely going to take a step back. There's no question. I mean, they they lost a lot from that team last year, and uh, it was great to see them make that run last year. You know, they had all the pieces in place, and, and they and they performed. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think they've got to rebuild a little bit this year. But uh, uh, you know, Duke is Duke is interesting. Um, you know, I, I think they've got a chance. Um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of new faces in their lineup too. I mean, uh, they've got freshmen at the three positions in the infield, and then of course they're relying probably on Marcus Stroman at shortstop when he's not pitching. Um, so that's kind of an X factor too. I mean, can he can he be your number one starter and your starting shortstop, or will that put too much toll on his arm uh, to play short every day? I mean, it's. Uh, there's some questions with this team. They've got two more freshmen penciling in the outfield. I mean, it's, it's a young team. Um, you know, I kind of like them on the mound, but but I think there's a lot of questions elsewhere. I don't I don't think they're a regional team. Uh, I think in the end, um, the ACC will will take a step back from from having eight bids last year. It's most ever. Um, you know, I think you're looking at Clemson, Florida State, Virginia. Um, you know, I think that NC State will probably be a regional team. Um, you know, Georgia Tech, even though they're very young. Uh, in the lineup, they're very talented in the lineup, and, and they're and they're very good in the mound. They have experience and, and good arms there. Um, and North Carolina, I mean, that could be a sixth team there. I mean, there's, you know, but but I don't think you'll see eight this year. Is my point? Yeah, and no, I think you're right. Uh, great point. I think last year was really a high water mark for the ACC, where you had a ninth place team in North Carolina get into the NCAA tournament, uh, and then like you said, they got eight bids. Um, but yeah, Virginia Tech just. Hard for a team, a program like that. It is not the point yet as a program where they can lose three guys drafted as highly as Wade Price and uh, uh, Han, you know, Jeffy Han, were all drafted um, and, and rebound so quickly from that. Just uh, they had significant losses last year, but I think we all see why uh, why University of Washington went after Peter Hughes, and we all see why Peter Hughes stayed in Virginia Tech last year because uh, 
he had a great team, and uh, you know, he's done a great job. He did a good job at BC, playing the foundation there. He's done a nice job at Virginia Tech, being in the regional last year, and having the kind of club he had. Baseball John, I, Go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I forgot to mention Miami also. That deck looks like a, certainly a clear regional team as well. So, uh, if you know, if North Carolina and, and NC State uh, perform, you know, as, as they hope, then maybe you're looking at a seven bid league. But uh, I'd say six or seven in that in that range somewhere. It does seem though, like uh, just with all of our college questionnaires rolling in, that Clemson is the favorite in the ACC. That's fair to say, is it not? Yeah, you know, they uh, all the votes that we got from coaches. Uh, Clemson is kind of a runaway choice for number one, but um, I think I think Florida State and Virginia are both be very good as well. Um, but uh, Clemson, uh, you know, despite the fact that they you know they have a few questions on the mound, um, they're going to miss Casey Harmon, their, their departed ace from last year. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know I, I like their lineup a lot, and and I, I think they're going to be pretty good. Yeah, they are. And I love the inside joke. We'll keep that one going as long as we possibly can on the Baseball America podcast. Aaron, uh, we have not touched on the Pac-10, two big issues of the offseason that uh, dominate a lot of the news uh, in our pages and just uh, a lot of the college baseball talk this offseason. And those are the penalties at Arizona State, uh, the aftermath of Pat Murphy's uh, tenure there, I guess a 14-year tenure for Coach Murphy uh, at Arizona State, and the uh, Sun Devils banned from postseason play for 2011, correct? Yeah, that's right. Pending appeal, but uh, the appeal won't come out until April or May at the earliest. And uh, it, it sounds like there's not a ton of optimism there, but you, you never know. Yeah, so you have this very talented Arizona State club. We just talked about a couple of the guys, Johnny Rudiger and, uh, and Zach Wilson, who are pretty high on our top 100 college prospects. And, and maybe the best. And maybe the best middle infield in the country with Zach McPhee and uh, uh, Devin Marrero. Very exciting. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a maybe. I am not the definite best middle infield in the country. I mean, Marrero yeah. getting a lot of votes on our preseason All-America team at shortstop. And Zach McPhee was last year's midseason player of the year, just a dynamic, athletic, albeit undersized player uh, who's really one of the real engines for Arizona State's amazing season last year. And then, um, if, I can, if I can if I can build on that for one second, John, if, if I'm, yeah. I'm going on a tangent here, but um, we talked about the positions of strength earlier. I think this is actually a pretty good year for second base too, because you've got Zach McPhee, you've got Ryan Wright, you've got Tyler Ramatula, you know, maybe Dan Paulini, Tyler Hanover. All those guys are pretty interesting, and, and I think the first uh, two guys I mentioned, uh, McPhee and Wright, could both go in the top two or three rounds. Uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Wright jump up higher than that. So not usually a position where you see a lot of strength is, is second base in college because most of the best athletes, of course, play shortstop. But um, I, I think it's a pretty strong year for that position. That's a good, that's a good tangent. I like that. Uh, interesting tangent. Uh, I mean, who knows, maybe Levi Michael might wind up at second base again in North Carolina. You sure. never know. So uh, that would definitely add to, the, to that position's uh, uh, depth of talent. But Arizona State on probation, we'll talk more about that as well. And then Cal, uh, really in the bigger, which is the bigger news, Arizona State going on probation or Cal dropping its program? And I think long-term, I think we obviously think Cal is the bigger deal. I think maybe more people who are just current fans might think it's Arizona State just because Arizona State's profile is so much higher because of how regularly they've gone to the College World Series. Um, to me, yeah, Arizona State wasn't a real big surprise. Cal really kind of came 100% out of nowhere because there was that story about a month before that said everything was under review at Cal, but 
which 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 surprised you more? Which do you think is a bigger story, uh, Cal or Arizona well, State? Well, the Cal Cal is the bigger story. I mean, it's you know the flagship university of uh, of the state of California. I mean, your current home state. Baseball. Yeah, I see. My current home state is right. Uh, it, it it's the Pac-10 conference. You know, it's it's one thing when Vermont and, and Northern Iowa pulled their programs, and those were very sad things in Duquesne, but. Uh, this is University of California. You know, how can you fold your program? It's baseball, for God's sake. It's, it's just, it's, it's shocking. And, and uh, you know, there's there's still a fight going on. Um, you know, they still have a chance to save it. But, um, you know, that was a really surprising announcement, and I thought it was a pretty huge story. Yeah, and, uh, and the other thing is that this Cal team is a good team. I mean, they, they came up, and they were discussed quite a bit in our top 25 meeting the other day. Again, I won't reveal where they rank yet. Um, when are we posting that, Aaron? When is the top 25 going to get revealed? Next week, um, I think probably around the middle of the week, we'll have to talk to J.J. Cooper about that. So we haven't fixed that day yet. When we do, we'll, we'll tweet that out. Aaron and I will tweet out when we uh, when we uh, are going to release the top 25. But, yeah, I mean, Cal's legit. You know, Cal uh, was a regional team last year, um, had all kinds of talent two years ago, all kinds of big league alumni. I mean, it's been a good program over the years. I haven't, you know, the Bears haven't been to Omaha, since, I believe, since 1992, back when Bob Alano was the head coach and uh, John Zuber was on that team, among others. Um, but this this year's club, Aaron, I think we both agree, it's, a, it's an Omaha sleeper club. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I like their team quite a bit. You know, it's 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 three power arms in the weekend rotation: Dixon Anderson and Eric Miller, and uh, the lefty Justin Jones. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's pretty athletic lineup, good line drive hitters. They're not going to be one of those teams that's going to you know sit back and, and rely on the three run homer. So I think they're they're well suited to to win this year with the, with, the, with the bats the way they are. Um, you know, I think they can make some noise if this is their last year or if it's not. Well, that's the thing. All the signs seem to be pointing to it is their last year. I mean, uh, there's a, quite an effort and a well moneyed effort going on. Uh, in, in trying to save Cal baseball, but it, to save Cal baseball and to save a lot of other sports for Title IX purposes. There were five sports that were being, or four sports being dropped and one sport, sport were being really relegated to club status, the rugby team, a well-moneyed rugby team at Cal. So the fact that they included rugby in this actually might be to Cal baseball's benefit because it seems like uh, that really woke up a lot of the alumni at Cal because the rugby team has been very successful there over the years. Um, but I, I was still shocked. I know how bad things are in California financially. Financially, I think we've all can read the, you know, read the news about the, the failed governance in the state of California. Um, and there's plenty of blame to go around. But I don't think any of us thought it would come to that. But when you have public money that's there to, where the university was supporting the athletic department financially, that does necessitate radical changes and, uh, it's just uh, sad that, you know, the baseball program and these other programs get dropped. At the same time, there's a multi-million, you know, $250 million renovation of the football stadium. And uh, just all kinds of bad symbolism for college baseball. If Cal, if Cal goes, through, goes through with it and shuts down the baseball program, I think that's going to be a horrible sign. Of it. You know, Coach Wilson over at uh, Duquesne was at the winter meetings, and he told me that their assistant athletic director uh, has told him that since they shut down their program at Duquesne, one of the things that he's been gotten the most calls about is you know, calls from the half dozen, maybe more, other universities 
uh, in the Northeast asking for advice. How did you do this? How did you decide to shut down baseball? And when you did it, what did you do? How did you help the athletes out? You know, asking for details. And they basically said that they were calling Duquesne. Other schools were calling Duquesne to get a roadmap of how to shut down their programs. And in these troubling financial times, I think we're going to see, especially if Cal goes through with it, it's just going to be a tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to see a lot of programs drop baseball. Um, so it could be a, that could be a very bad trend set, whereas I don't think Arizona State is a trend setter in. I think Arizona State is just a program where uh, I think a, you know, a guy in Pat Murphy is an excellent coach and is a fun guy, and I think is at heart a good guy. I think his ego and just uh, his success went to his head a little bit, and the word they use in the NCAA report uh, when they levied these penalties was a cavalier attitude toward NCAA rules. I think that's been true of Arizona State athletics many times, and in this case it was very true of the baseball program. And it seems like their uh, their punishment of a one-year postseason ban uh, is fairly deserved. Uh, what do you think of, the, of their punishment? It was harsh. I mean, it was harsh because – you know, you're, you're punishing players who um, didn't have anything to do with it, you know, and then the coach um, isn't even there anymore. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I thought that was the right approach. I, I don't know what is the right approach. I mean, clearly they, they violated some rules. It's, it's unclear, um, you know, just how serious that was. And clearly the NCAA thought it was pretty serious. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a harsh penalty. There's no question. And, and I don't like seeing the players get punished. But uh, I also understand. Yeah, that, that is the way the NCAA acts, unfortunately. Yeah. They, they don't, I don't think they have anything in their rules that allow them to punish coaches. They punish programs. And I think that Arizona State, and my, it seems like Arizona State, I didn't think that what they, I don't think the phone calls, you know, that was one of the biggest issues here was phone calls and they had the recruitment of Kyle Rowling. To me, those two things weren't enough to get Pat Murphy fired. That was a CYA move by Arizona State by Lisa Love to try to keep them from getting probation and try to keep Arizona State from getting a second lack of institutional control in the last six years. But once that happened, once they got a lack of institutional control, um, there was really no other recourse by the NCAA's rules and to put a year probation. To me, it seemed like the um, you know, the bigger issue here is it goes well beyond the baseball program. It's just, you know, how does Arizona State have more probations than any other program? I mean, yeah. you know, we, as, as ACC basketball fans, we know that Herb Sendex, their basketball coach, and he actually made their basketball coach, their basketball program better. And that says a lot for Arizona State's basketball history. I don't know Arizona State's football history, but I mean, they're not a national factor, are they? Have they ever been a national factor? Arizona State football? I don't think so. I don't think of them that way. Right. Baseball is the flagship program there. And baseball hasn't won a World Series, a College World Series since 1981. So, I mean, how does this university <laughs> run afoul of NCAA rules more than anyone else? It's kind of amazing. So that history is why I think it was a deserved punishment. I don't think that the recruiting of, Mike, of, of Kyle Rowling by Mike Moreno and not really properly logging your recruiting phone calls, to me, those aren't fireable offenses, and they aren't the kind of things that should get you on probation. But when you take it in the context of cavalier attitude toward NCAA violations and a history of a cavalier attitude toward NCAA 
rules for the whole university, then I understand why they got and, – and I think that that's why, to me, it's somewhat justified. I don't think it uh, – you know, I think, that, I think we could both uh, agree that there's a lot of – in a lot of ways, we both just blow up the NCAA and start over with a new uh, rule book. Maybe not blow up the NCAA, but blow up the rule book and start from scratch. But, with, you know, with the rule book they have, I don't have a choice other than to give Arizona State probation. Once they decided that those infractions – and, the, and the, their own investigation, you know, the university's own investigation, which kind of tried to sweep them to the rug a little bit. Um, I mean, did they send in their own assistant AD to try to basically put together a spreadsheet saying, oh, here's the calls that we made and here's the mistakes that we made, um, and try to, like, not bring that forward to the investigators? It seemed like it was Arizona State's reaction to it uh, was also part of the, the big problem in, this, in the NCAA's investigation. They really didn't cooperate so much that they tried to, to minimize it and cover it up. Right, yeah, I think that's a good point, and, and that uh, certainly contributed to uh, the overall perception uh, that this is a renegade athletic department, and, and that's a good point. I mean, um, I, that's, I personally That's a great point. Yeah. I, I think it's more of a renegade athletic department than it was a renegade baseball program. I'm not saying that Pat Murphy's a saint or that that program is, comes off scot-free here because they certainly shouldn't and don't. But like if you you know to me, the bigger problem is the athletic department, not necessarily the baseball program, because the baseball program has had good APR scores, good GPAs, and wins. Those are the things they're mostly supposed to do. And you know the quote unquote illegal recruiting of Kyle Roller or uh, Kyle Rowling, I keep getting his name wrong. Rowling. It was Kyle Rowling. Kyle Roller is the guy who played at East Carolina. Rowling was the catcher slash DH slash first baseman. Uh, who you know came in a, a year early, basically at uh, Arizona State from Central Arizona Junior College. Uh, it, that was the main. That was the only really material benefit that they got, and the players got some money, and those were that was repaid working for Pat Murphy. There were these illegal recruiting phone calls, so I guess you really can't chronicle or measure how much of those illegal calls helped them bring in players like Zach Wilson or Johnny Rudiger, the other players, or Zach McPhee, those kind of players. But really, Rowling is the only guy who was directly brought in that you can really tie to. And he, he, you know, that's not one player who's the reason why they dominated the Pac-10 for you know, the better part of the last decade. I'll tell you one thing that bothers me a little bit about, about Pat Murphy's explanation and Arizona State's explanation for, for some of those phone calls. When you're talking, you know, a thousand phone calls over the limit or something like that, and then and, and they try to, to pass it off uh, as saying, well, you know, a lot of these were just dropped calls. Yeah. What network? What network are you guys using? I mean, come on, seriously, <laughs> you're gonna have a thousand drop calls? Come on, I mean, that's just not realistic. It's it's, it's a, it to me, it's a, uh, it's a manipulation of of a loophole, and it, it's not it's disingenuous. I think disingenuous is a great word, and that's because uh, you know, I, like you said, I feel bad for those players, but most of those players were on that team last year that went to Omaha. Um, I don't feel as bad for them maybe as I might for other. Uh, I mean, a more up-and-coming program, but it's a it's a shame for those players. But that is, you know, uh, I don't think the NCA really has anything in its rules that can. There's not really another way for them to to go at this. So, uh, but I, I do think Arizona State's uh, punishment was not a surprise. Um, hard to say that they hard to say they earned it in some ways because I think it's kind of ticky-tack. But I think when you look at the total picture at Arizona State, I think that. Uh, but whoever was the next program to get on probation was going to get smacked down, and 
unfortunately for them, it was baseball. Aaron, uh, the last thing, uh, the most recent off-season story, I guess, that we should talk about is Minnesota's uh, – if you want to wrap up with Minnesota's uh, scheduling problems in the Metrodome hole, the hole in the Metrodome, or the no-agent rule. Uh, we could touch on both of them briefly if you want. I mean, like Minnesota basically just seems like they are, uh, they've been quasi-naked here. They're, they're, in, they're in real trouble just to see this home schedule because, uh, you know, the Metrodome, uh, which I believe is also called Mall of America Field now, uh, that, that, that building, the damage to that building really makes it, uh, they can't play there and that's their, that's their main home stadium, especially for a lot of early season events. And uh, the Gophers are going to be the road Gophers this year as opposed to the Golden Gophers. They're going to be the traveling Gophers this year. Uh, what's the latest on where Minnesota is going to play a lot of home games? Well, um, you know, there, there's a couple of things going on here. You've got the uh, – uh, there's, there's been the, the Cal Poly series um, has been moved to Cal Poly from the Metrodome. Um, they're going to move the Dairy Queen tournament – um, from the Metrodome to, to either Vero Beach or Tucson. They're still in discussions about that. Um, you've got, uh, um, you know, a few other balls in the air while they wait for, for word about whether um, the Metrodome will be reopened in March. Uh, if it is reopened in March, then, uh, you know, Minnesota can play its home conference games there uh, in April. But otherwise, um the uh, the Twins have offered to, to to let Minnesota use their their Target Field facility, weather permitting, of course. Um, you know, there's there's some some issues with that um, about you know will it be warm enough to play outside and and um, you know if, 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 will the field be okay? I mean, obviously the Twins aren't going to let the 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 Gophers play on that field if it's if it's wet or um, you know just just not not playable. So um, there, there's some some issues there, but I think they'll be able to cobble it together in the end. It seems like that. I mean, they're very fortunate that uh, obviously it's not the same as playing in the Dome, but they're very fortunate that the four weekends they're home, the Twins are on the road. So uh, the Twins just continue to earn kudos uh, as, you know, this great uh, organization. Not that other major league organizations wouldn't do it, but, I mean, the Twins are just a bunch of good dudes. And, uh, you know, the fact that they've made Target Field available to the University of Minnesota I think is pretty cool. Aaron, did you ever watch the video of the uh, Metrodome collapse? I have seen it. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's really one of my uh, favorite YouTube videos. Just uh, no one got hurt, thankfully, but it is amazing to see all that snow just pour through that roof. Um, and lastly, let's we'll, we'll touch on the, uh, the the no agent rule. Um, I thought that was actually uh, a two year about face by the NCAA on this. Whereas a couple years ago, was that in Philadelphia when Denny Pope said this really isn't that big of a deal. I think all the teams, uh, I think all of our players follow the rules to two years later this, you know, this year in Nashville, Danny Pope saying, hey, look, we know they're all basically saying they're all using agents. Let's figure out how they can do this in an above board manner. He said, well, they're, I guess his actual quote was, they're all negotiating these large contracts and they deserve to have representation, but we want them to remain amateurs while they receive representation. That's pretty much what he said, right? That, that was what he implied and he didn't quite say that specifically but uh okay. um that that was how i interpreted it certainly and and one thing that i think i think is is huge is just that the NCAA is finally admitting that something needs to be done you know 2 years ago even last year you had the enforcement staff get up there at the coaches convention and 
uh, it was kind of more of a fire and brimstone kind of a thing. Like, we'll, we'll catch you, and you know we're serious That's about it. these rules. And uh, you know now you know you have the same enforcement guys get up there and say, look, we're going to enforce the rules that are in place, but you know we want to hear what you think. What, can, what should we do? You know how can we change this? How 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 do we need to set this up in the future? So it's a completely different tone. Um, and and you know rather than denial about the the, the prevalence. Of, of advisors and agents um, negotiating with teams, um, you know, there, there's there's tacit agreement from from Denny Pope. So, um, you know, that just shows that they they finally are ready to acknowledge that uh, their rules are directly um, in in um, contrast with the uh, with the, the the industry norm in baseball. So, I think it's a great yeah, time with logic. Yeah, it's a great time they're finally ready to do something. I don't think it hurts that Denny Pope is the director of football and baseball operations because football is where the agent stuff. I think if, if this hadn't happened in football for a lot of prominent programs and also North Carolina's program, which is not necessarily a prominent football program, but uh, obviously uh, a program that was hit hard by agent, uh, agent-related suspensions. I mean, you've got Robert Quinn, who's still on uh, Mel Kuyper and Tom McShay's top five or ten picks, he didn't play all year because it was suspended by an agent, uh, by by agent uh, dalliances at, at the University of North Carolina, and he, uh, you know, he didn't play the whole year, and he still. Uh, so, so I think that there's a high-profile problem with college football in the fall and last summer. I think that got the NCAA's attention much more than James Paxton or Andy Oliver or anything like that. So you're, you're exactly right, and Denny Pope even mentioned North Carolina by name uh, as you know as, as something that kind of. Spurred this uh, this uh, comprehensive study that they're doing into the the role of agents um, in, across different sports. But uh, you know, here's the contract, Aaron. So Pat Murphy has some illegal phone calls, illegally recruits one player, and uh, has a somewhat ca- I, would, I would say cavalier attitude, as I said, toward re- toward uh, NCAA regulations. He gets fired, and the baseball program gets on one year probation. Meanwhile, North Carolina, Butch Davis goes to the freaking Music City Bowl, <laughs> uh, beats Tennessee because the ump- the referees goof, beats a six and six Tennessee team because the referees goof. So it's his first bowl win. I think North Carolina's won eight games or nine, I guess eight, eight games maximum under Butch Davis. Not only is he retained, but the the chancellor, who's in like in his early forties, has basically staked his reputation and his job on Butch Davis, and North Carolina may get off without a year, uh, without major postseason penalties. So I think that tells you a little bit, A, about what a joke the NCAA is, but B, how much, like, reputation and past, you know, past problems have to do with NCAA punishment. Arizona State's past mattered more than its most recent foibles and mistakes. Whereas North Carolina's mistakes in football are much greater, much greater NCAA violations when basically half your defense is using uh, and basically has illegal agent contact. And oh, by the way, your associate head coach, who the head coach coached in high school and has known for 20 years, was on the payroll of an agent. But that, which is a much greater offense, it's probably going to be punished less by the NCAA in terms of uh, probation. And that, uh, I think that just really boils down just how much, you know, uh, the past 
history at Arizona State is the reason why the baseball program is really getting on probation, not the current uh, mistakes they made. Does that you're 100%, 100% right, and, and the, the NCAA emphasized repeatedly in its report that uh, Arizona State has more major infractions than any other school and uh, more uh, lack of institutional control violations, and that's a major deal. And that, that's, I, I think there's no question that's why they got pounded so hard. I guess I keep saying that because I, I, the point I'm not making well enough is that the, I still think someone's going to take a chance and hire Pat Murphy because his on-the-field track record, again, those G, high GPAs, high APR, high win total, um, getting Omaha four times, all these big leaguers that he's from, uh, you know coached. I think that's going to outweigh the fact that they, they, the mistakes that he made in, in rules in Fort Wayne, Arizona State were – not that bad. <laughs> they're not good, but they're not that bad, and it's really not what got them on probation. It was the past history. Do you think there's enough subtlety there that an athletic director will take a chance on Pat Murphy and hire him? Uh, just because because I think he's he has a better resume than any other coach that's on that kind of free agent market right now. Uh, if a, if a major BCS type program or a big college program wanted to make a change at the end of the t- 2011 season. I think Pat Murphy's a pretty attractive hire. Somebody will want to make a splash, and uh, you know there's certain programs that that you know that, that like to like to have a high profile, big personality, um, and a guy with a track record, and, and will want to make a splash with their hire. Uh, I bet you, I just have a feeling that Pat Murphy winds up landing at some SEC job in the next year or two. I, that's my prediction. I think that's a safe prediction and a great way to end the podcast because I, I agree with you, uh, Aaron. Fun podcast. Uh, it's going to be difficult doing these podcasts over 3,000 miles away. So far away, so close. <laughs> up, with a, up with a static in the radio. Uh, but with uh, Google Voice and uh, cell phones, you can go anywhere. So Mark Darewitz will appreciate that uh, uh, near line for line recitation of the U2 song, but uh, probably nobody else will. Aaron, uh, thanks for, thanks for uh, d- donating the time, and uh, enjoy the, the wonderful weather in Tokyo. Enjoy your ice, John. And we'll be back with another Baseball America College podcast uh, probably next week when the Top 25 is posted. So, And then, of course, as the season gets rolling, Aaron and I get rolling every week, no matter whether he's in California or not. We're going to roll out a College Top 25 podcast every Monday. So look forward to that, as I do and as Aaron will. And you can follow Aaron at Aaron Fit on Twitter. I'm at John Manuel BA. I think I passed you in Twitter followers recently, Aaron, which is exciting. I think I'm third on the BA Twitter totem pole. After uh, Big Cheese, Jim Callis, and uh, and Ben Babler, who was our Twitter pioneer at BA, so uh, double, double check that. But that's going to be a, quite a battle, I think, as the college baseball season wrap uh, heats up uh, to see who uh, will remain ahead in Twitter followers. So for at Aaron Sid, I'm at John Manuel BA. We'll see you next week on the Baseball America College Podcast. So long, everybody. <laughs>